everybody in the venue this evening can agree on and that is meeting Liz Truss really took it out the Queen. Hello guys! Well that's a really long applause for so so such little effort. You're not as conservative in your praise as some of the other audiences have been. It gets a wee bit rowdier as the week goes on, so thank you for that. Um, normally I would have my t-shirt tucked in, but I realise that my fly is irredeemably done. It's not even a zip-up scenario. It's absolutely gone. Um, so the t-shirt's down there just to protect my dignity and not to distract anybody too much. Uh, now, my name is Darren McGarvey. I don't want to assume that you know who I am. And I know that there are some people here who are kind of strangely culturally open-minded and they look through the Fringe programme and they've got a wee bit of disposable income and they, and they go, oh, but we'll go and see this thing we've never heard of. Bizarre, bizarre behaviour. And uh, but the thing is, often those people come because they haven't heard of me. They feel a wee bit kind of superior, you know, they feel this, it's kind of, it's like, well, if I don't know him, who the fuck is he? So this is for you pricks. <laughs> uh, I'm at a really interesting point in my career where if you don't know who I am, that's actually evidence of how uncool and obscure you are. <laughs> which is a welcome reversal of the previous uh, circumstances. So my name is Darren McGarvey, the Orwell Prize winning recovering addict whose alcoholic mother once chased him with a stabbing weapon, which depending on what Scottish tabloid you were reading in 2017 was either a carving knife or a lightsaber. And being from the south side uh, of Glasgow growing up in the 80s, uh, the carving knife's actually more far-fetched of the two. We butter our pieces with machetes, troops, and that's how it's done. Now, I'm a bit nervous uh, this evening, right? You know who's, some of you will know who I've got on as guests tonight, right? And you'll meet them very, very shortly after I've done this kind of obligatory warm-up routine. But I'm sure I speak for one of my guests, Etienne, to say we're all a wee bit kind of thrilled and moved by the fact that Grant Morrison is here. And not only that Grant Morrison is here, but that he's actually sound as fuck, right? Which is kind of what I thought would be the case, but I've had some bad experiences. Being kind of mid-level in terms of the industry, arts, culture, media, and stuff like that, I'm occasionally thrust into the path of famous people, sometimes really, really famous people, sometimes really, really wealthy people. And it's a bit of a bizarre experience. And there are a few reasons why that I'll go into now. One aspect of the experience that's bizarre is that as someone who's a way out there on the left, deep down, even if I do try to hide it to maximize my employment opportunities, <laughs> it, is, it is strange when you find yourself in a green room with one of these lizard people and suddenly you get a sense of their humanity. 
Suddenly you get a sense of their deep love of poetry or music or their children that they're raising, the adversities that they face in their life. And I have to say, it humanizes them in a way that's not great news for the class war. <laughs> and it's certainly gonna make them all a lot harder to guillotine. <laughs> also, I'm not impressed by fame in and of itself, right? I've never been impressed by fame. I'm the sort of person who will turn my back to your Lamborghini as my own little on-pavement protest. You come by in a fancy car, I'm like, ah, fuck you, right? So uh, to impress me, you have to be about something, right? You don't have to have achieved anything, but you have to be about something. There has to be some kind of substance to you. And the thing is, when you meet really, really famous people, as a result of their fame, and the result of many of the ordinary punters wanting to contact them and get to know them and tell them what an impact they've had in their lives, this perimeter of other people grows up around the famous person. And the whole point of the perimeter is to keep everyone away from them so that they don't go fucking mad. The thing is, though, that perimeter makes them mad. It makes them strange. It makes them weird. And they are like a traveling circus. And so if someone like me turns up who's not impressed and they're used to having a tremendous fuss made over them all the time, then I can come across as a bit of an arrogant self-regarding arsehole. Which is obviously a view that's not entirely unjustified uh, where I'm concerned. But I'll give you an example, right? So a few years ago, I was interviewed by Russell Brand, right? He's a hero in the recovery community. Obviously, he's a wonderful entertainer. His careers took some crazy twists and turns. Not everybody's on board with his politics, but he's generally accepted to be a talented, bright, charismatic guy. And so it was a pleasure for me to be interviewed by him. So I was sitting uh, in the interview. I was very, very highly caffeinated. Now you can imagine, if you've got any sense of me already, it's that I'm very verbose. I'll take five minutes to say something that would normally take one minute. And Russell Brand, he's a bit like that, isn't he? So you can imagine how this podcast went down. It's just the two of us having this fucking verbal dick-waving contest, right? Blah, fucking blah, 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 blah. Look at me with all of my big words, taking fucking ages to say things. And so in the middle of the interview, I just got up and went to the toilet. Now, Jordan Peterson didn't even do that, and he's in his 50s. Although in my defense, I don't excrete quite as much urine through speech. Then during lockdown, I had a crazy experience. I had a crazy experience where I was contacted by a rock star, a genuine rock star, Paolo Nutini. Normally you get a wee cheer for Paolo. Is Paolo not in vogue anymore, guys? No, is it all Luis Capaldi now, aye? So it wasn't it Paolo that got in touch with me, right? It was, his, it was his manager, right? DM'd me on Instagram. For people a wee bit longer on the tooth, DMing someone's not a sex act, all right? Now, the message came like this, Darren, this is my impression of a kind of middle-class, faceless industry person, right? Darren, Paolo is a massive fan, and Paolo would like to reach out to you. Reach out to me from where, fucking Paisley? The last time somebody reached out to me from Paisley, it was to throw a bit of the pavement they had ripped up out of the street in Fergusley Park. It's for that reason I've adopted a reach-in policy when it comes 
to Paisley, although it's one I was happy to relax in this particular instance, folks. Surely you would too. I was really flattered to know that Paolo Nottini, a legendary musician, uh, even knew who I was, right? Now, here's the thing. Coincidentally, and this is true, a couple of weeks before I was contacted by Paolo's manager, I had had a dream about Paolo Nottini, right? Now, I'm not a big Paolo Nottini expert, Right, if it comes on the radio or I stick an album on Spotify now and again, but I'm not walking around thinking about Paolo Nottini. So why I was rattling around in my subconscious, I couldn't really say. It wasn't an adventure dream, it wasn't a sexy dream, it wasn't a scary dream. He was just there, right? And so overwhelmed by the sense of coincidence that I had been approached by his manager, I just blotted the fact out that I'd had a dream about Paolo Nottini over the DM. Not really thinking that the manager would become overwhelmed by a subsequent sense that I was desperate and mental. <laughs> it was one of those moments, folks, where you're just like, universe, stop the record, please. Skip it back. I would like another do-over at that moment, if you don't mind. But I cringed after it. And that was kind of a wee moment when I realized where I sit in the pecking order. Because quite often I'll contact, I'll be contacted by people and then I'll just go, and you know what, it's no worth the hassle because you can't do anything for me. You know what I mean? So I was getting a wee taste of my own, my own medicine. But then obviously, I don't know about you guys, but I find it difficult to sit in those uncomfortable emotions. You know what I mean? I'm from the west of Scotland. I can't deal with feeling shame. And I can't deal with feeling embarrassment. And I can't deal with feeling inferior. And I don't know about you guys, but what's worked for me over the years is moving from those difficult, heavy emotions directly into aggression. <laughs> and so I thought, if I could only orchestrate some sort of conflict with Paolo Nettini, then I would be able, I would be able to take control of this dynamic which exists mostly in my imagination and thus spare my esteem any more downward feelings. So I was just walking around my living room in lockdown, do you know what I mean? Like, fuck Paolo Nettini. <laughs> fuck Paisley. And I'm not being funny, but being people far more famous and important than Paolo Nettini have felt completely free to contact me personally. Former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, before a que appearance on Question Time, she sent me a wee DM on Twitter. Darren, I'm a big fan. Keep speaking truth to power. I says, okay, well, since you're here. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That concludes the warm-up for, for this evening. Uh, now, it gives me great pleasure to, to introduce uh, my two guests, who are both storytellers. And actually, there's a lot, there's a lot more similarities than, than you might expect. Um, so my first guest is, uh, I would say, the greatest contemporary chronicler of the super world, a line that I've stolen out of his own book. Uh, and uh, he comes from rather modest beginnings, but is recognized as a change maker, an innovator, and a pioneer whose work has influenced everything from comic books to comic book films to video game franchises. And also, I can tell you now, my first impression is, like I say, he's also sound as fuck, which is a big winner for me. Make some noise for Grant Morrison. Thanks, man. <laughs> and my next guest 
I've known this chap for quite some time. I linked up with him many, many years ago. And uh, I remember the first impression he made on me as I went to his place in Mary Hill. I wasn't sure if it was like a hideout or something. Uh, you know what it's like walking through Mary Hill or a place like it. And then I got there and I was kind of struck by the fact that this guy had an office. And he was fucking serious. And he was about 20. And I was like, right, okay, you're one to watch. Since then, he has gone on to direct hundreds of music videos, short films. He's just released his first feature, The Difference Between Us, which has been running at the CCA. And then it's going to have a run in Sweden uh, next week. This is a really interesting guy with an interesting take, not just on the career side of things, but also on the cultural side, being that his point of origin was the Democratic Republic of Congo. And then for some reason, he's come to Scotland for a better life. That doesn't make any sense. We need to get to the bottom of this. Make some noise for Etienne Kobabo. Woo! Grab, grab my Red Bull as well there. So I've got something to do with my hands. Okay, guys, welcome. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to join me tonight. As you can tell, I'm a wee bit excited. I mean, this that's definitely the most upbeat intro I've had to the show. This uh, is I just full on Taskmaster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as, as in that, as, I just, uh, you know, be getting the sort of money that they get on Taskmaster, though, I have to be up front, guys. Um, uh, the first thing I, I want to do is just get the ball smarties. on deck in terms of... Um, for the benefit of anyone who has just walked up today uh, and they're just like, we'll just take a wee punt on this. So Grant, I'll start with you. Um, I made reference there to Super Gods, right? Which is this massive volume which blends in a pretty, in a pretty spectacular way a kind of history of comic book as a genre and also as interspersed with memoir about key moments in your life where often the memory that you're bringing forth is that you, in a moment, whether it's being rejected from Glasgow School of Art or getting your appendix out, are seeing a parallel between yourself and something in that super world. And so I wonder if you could just kind of give us a bit of background into how you fell in love with comic books and uh, re really what it's done for you in life beyond the obvious, which is that you're a professional who's been working in that industry. Well, the interesting thing for me was... Uh when I was a kid, my father, my mother were anti-nuclear activists. So my dad had been in the Second World War. He'd become a pacifist after the war. It kind of inspired by Gandhi. And he came back and he became these kind of non-violent activists. And at the time, we obviously had the, the Polaris uh, missile base up there, which was a US facility at the time. So they were constantly taking me up there. And basically, for me, the the... the to reduce it to the, the simplest thing, I was terrified of the bomb. My parents were terrified of the bomb, and my dad's a big, tough guy, and my mum's really clever and smart, but they're terrified of this thing. So when you're a kid, the bomb is like really, it's a big deal. And we were allegedly fighting against this, trying to get rid of it from, from Scotland. But those same sailors, and here's where the irony comes in, the same sailors who brought the bomb were bringing in American comics. And they basically got rid of those comics when they finished reading them. They would come in as ballast in the ships. And when they finished reading with them, they gave them to this place in Paisley called the Yankee Bookstore. And that was the combination of the death machine and the antidote. Superman was the antidote. He could take an atom bomb in the face and smile. You know, the Hulk, he just turns into a superhero when you hit him with a gamma bomb. So 
for me, even though I knew these characters weren't real and it's not like Superman's going to catch the bomb, as an imaginative inoculation for me, it changed everything. It was a sudden realization there's an idea better, faster, smarter, bigger, and more powerful than the bomb could ever hope to be. And so that became, they, they became quite a lifeline for me then. And I was into lots of stuff as a kid, weird stuff, UFOs and space and sci-fi and all that, but the comics were, were just a big thing. And because my mother was a science fiction fan, my uncle Billy was a big comic fan. These things were just around the house and I was very much encouraged to draw and to write and to create. And so I came from that kind of background where it was seen as a worthwhile thing to do that, and I was, I was really supported in doing it. So it, just, it was always my goal. I was always going to be a writer, and I wanted to write for TV, and then I kind of went back. Comics started to take off in the 80s, and I just thought, this is the place to be. This is where the really exciting stuff is happening. And, and you, you allude there to an aspect of the working class experience, which is not very well documented in terms of culture, there are certain tropes associated with working classness that do change over time, but they still contain the same fundamental characteristics. There's a propensity for violence. There is a kind of vulgarity, a coarseness. And there's never really a depiction of that working class experience, which is an interest in vinyl, has an interest in literature, has an interest in, in poetry. And I've spoken to so many artists uh, or poets, Tom Leonard being one of them, and walking into his library and his home and just realizing, you know, he's been collecting books and music since he was a kid playing vinyls and Pollock, which would have been kind of unusual, you know? And so I wonder, in terms of, it seems like your, your family set up and the dynamic there um, was supportive and encouraging of that, but I wonder what sort of reception that your interests and aspirations might have received in a peer group that might have been molded by a different kind of environment. Well, they were usually okay. You know, I was raised a pacifist, so I learned every known strategy for never getting into fights. I was never bullied as a kid. I don't get into fights. I've got strategies, you know, that I learned. So I tended to get on with everyone, and people didn't give me a hard time. I mean, I, honestly, I've been pretty lucky in terms of that aspect of it. I was just treated as a creative person from the age of five. And, and felt that that was always my destiny and supported in that and given paper to draw on and, you know, and being allowed to develop in that way. It's really interesting because that, that, that wasn't my experience. Now, I'm project well, I, I, was I, mean, I mean, I've read your stuff. Uh, you know, so so I, I was projecting yeah, a bit. And you, there, you, you know, live just across the river for me. I, I know, I know. <laughs> Etienne, if I, could, if I could bring you in, um, obviously when, when I first encountered you in person, it was in Mary Hill, which is like most... Uh, uh, estates in Glasgow. I'll probably get chipped for calling it an estate. <laughs> Most schemes in Glasgow, um, you know, it has a reputation. And uh, I remember when I met you, I had obviously just shared with the audience there, you were already getting started. You were quite, you were quite deep into the process of trying to set yourself up as a filmmaker. Can you just talk a wee bit about, you know, uh, how long had you been living there since, from the time that I met you? Because did you say you were 10, 11 years? here now. So yeah. you must have just, you weren't long here. So I think I, I arrived in Scotland in 2009, so I had been living there about seven years. And uh, my life before I came to Scotland, I was living in Uganda. I was kind of like separated uh, from my family during war in Congo. I come from a place called North Kivu on the border of Uganda and, and Congo. So when there was war, my parents went a, dif a different direction and also ended up in Uganda and we're in Scotland already. So I had been living in, in Uganda alone for like eight years on the streets, you know, 
Uh, I started playing music in bars, learning to create, and then watching a lot of movies and uh, you know collecting money for films. Or there's a way you show films in the ghetto in Uganda, so I could collect money on the door for people who want to see movies. So when I moved to Scotland, I was like, life was tough for me in Uganda. It's like I was in a lesson. I was in a class, and we're being taught how life can be really tough. So when I got to Scotland, I was like, this is. It felt like I know this is gonna sound cliche to say, but. Uh, it's like you're in the promised land now. Every opportunity that you get, you have to, you know, use it to something good. So I was really determined when you met me. I was trying to find my way, and stories have always been uh, the only thing that I've used to escape. And if you come from a black family, if you want to be a filmmaker, a story maker, you, your mom will be like, yeah, you, it's like you're a disgrace to the family because you're meant to be a lawyer or a doctor. So if you say you're a filmmaker, they're like, what? What's that? <laughs> Where are you going to get money, you know? Uh, so everybody looked at me strange. But I was kind of like, I so much believed myself. The time I spent, I spent with myself in Uganda kind of made me into this fierce character that if I felt like my heart and my gut was telling me to do something, I'll focus on that. No matter who tells me no. Even if it's my family, I just feel, I feel like stories have sort of helped me get out of a lot of trouble. And that's what I really wanted to focus on. And you, I mean, you, you've shot a lot of music videos and things like that. And I guess a lot of filmmakers, this is how they start. Because I, I suppose the music, the music video, well, obviously still being a lot of work, and it would be different concepts for different artists. And um, you'll be taking a kind of directorial role in that as well, getting more creative. You know, the artist will come to you with their idea. You dial it down, get realistic. Do you know what I mean? You're like, gonna have car crashes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, the, you, you begin to find your voice within that, because that can sometimes be like a trade, can't it? You're making money doing the music videos. You're providing a service, but then within that, you begin to find a voice and a creativity as well as a familiarity with the various moving parts of being a filmmaker, because there's more to it than just holding a camera. I think yeah, with music videos, I feel like. Uh, at the time when I've, uh, I started doing them and when I stopped, I still do them sometimes, but it depends on the budget. I, uh, I feel like it was fun cutting a video for three minutes and you know, seeing how you could tell a story in a really short uh, way because I, I grew up seeing music videos on MTV in Africa and I was like, I always wanted to you know, tell a story with the camera, you know, just do that. But there's more layers to it, you know, story-wise, lighting, depth, what are you trying to portray, you know? So as I did, I've shot over 500 music videos, some are online, some are not. As I did so much of it, I, I started losing the excitement and I felt like I wanted to do more with story, right? And then that's when the last two years I focused on doing my David film and it's been an exciting journey. And a tiring one, I'm sure, as well. There's a lot of responsibility, isn't it, when you're kind of carrying the thing on your own back. Obviously, there'll be a team around you. You'll have a lot of moral support from people. And there, there will be fans and consumers who are, who are um, validating your decision to do it by, by parting with our hard-earned money to support the work. But it is a big gamble, isn't it, to say, I'm going to invest all this time, all this energy, and all this money whether you've raised the capital yourself, whether you've got funding still, there's so many other things you can do with it. But you have, you seem to have a kind of singular belief in what you're doing, and this is propelling you through everything. Yeah, I just, with life, I think 
the best advice I think I may have heard or seen on TV was this guy who was talking about, if you're driving from Glasgow to Edinburgh and it's midnight and you've got your, your car, you, you, your full beam lights can only go as far, you know? You can't see how far you're going, where Edinburgh is. It's just the faith that you have that keeps you going. And I've always felt like if I'm doing something, if I'm putting my whole energy in it, it needs to mean something, you know? I need to feel like my God is saying, Etienne, okay, you, you're doing this. Doesn't matter what the outcome is gonna be, just keep going. And I think the most funniest part is when I was in Sweden, I've got a bunch of friends who are musicians. Uh, we went to the studio recording soundtracks for the film, and halfway through the recording, they're like, Etienne, we gotta go. I'm like, what do you mean we gotta go? And then they took me to this, you know, sea. They're like, you gotta do the shower, man, the sea shower. I'm like. Black people don't like cold, mate. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and then this old lady, 70s, she just comes out. It's like, son, are you going to go? Are you not just going to stand there? And then Axel had told me, 18, when you go and have a cold shower, the way you're going to feel after, the amount of energy you're going to get is going to be insane. I'm like, no way, I'm not going to do that. But when I went and did it, uh, I'm going to just say that every morning when I, I was about to shoot a scene for my movie, I had done a cold shower the, 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 that morning. And my, the amount of energy I got from that and the belief in myself already and knowing that being in Scotland and working with all these amazing creatives, it's a, it's, it's a great opportunity. It's a dream come true for me. So I had to push myself, even though there was that fear. The fear is always there, but you have to push beyond that. Yeah, I 100% agree. Although it is sometimes a leap of faith. I mean, sometimes the metrics are telling you it's not even a good idea, whatever those metrics are. Um, but I think if, if you make a decision of your own volition for the right reasons, even if that doesn't work out, that all feeds into your understanding of what, what you might do next time. Now, Grant, in terms of obviously your work uh, in comics, there's a couple of kind of ball on deck questions that I want to ask because I've oh, obviously sure? I've watched a lot of, of, of yeah. interviews of both of you or read things that you've <clears> said in interviews, but often the interviewer um, is, is of that world. And so they get straight into asking you the questions that you'll get asked mm -hmm. a lot. Do you know what I mean? Whereas I'm interested to know when a comic, a graphic novel or a comic strip is coming together, what comes first? Is it the writing? Is it an image? Is the illustrator working with the writer? How does it move forward and, and, and how does it develop? It's basically in any way you like, you know, it, it depends. The way I worked was, was how they started, which was to write a full script. It's like a shooting script with all the dialogue. It's a description of everything you see in the drawings. And uh, you hand that into the artist and then they translate it into art. The weird thing is, for me, I, I started out drawing, so I always start with the drawings. So you start with these little thumbnail drawings, then you translate those into words. Then you give it to an artist who translates it back into better drawings. But there's other, other people, like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby at Marvel. Kirby would just come in, like pages, you know, or Lee would say, can I have a story with Doctor Doom meets whatever? And he would come in with story pages, and then Stan Lee would fill in balloons and write the dialogue down and give it a bit of his kind of polish and pizzazz. So there's a lot of different ways of doing it, but I do the complete full script method and tell them exactly what to do. So it's like being a director. And, and, and obviously your, your, your work spans uh, obviously decades, but also you've jumped around different properties. Um, some that will be known to everyone here and some that will be, be less known. I'm really interested to know 
what it was like the first time you got a shot at one of the more known ones in terms of how did it feel? Did you, did you pitch something? Did someone come to you and say, here, we love your stuff? What was that like? What was it like to work under that kind of pressure? I'm assuming there would have been a pressure involved, but maybe not. Nah, again, it's the, you know, the excitement is something you've waited to do all your life and it's happened. Because I was on the dole for eight years trying to do this and like selling a couple of scripts and then failing. And then it, it took a long time to actually become uh, you know, full time on it. So it was just a case of sending stuff out. And then DC Comics called me because I'd got some work here in Britain. So they'd seen it, 2000 AD comic, you know. So they'd seen that and they came headhunting. And they met me on the day and I, came, I had this idea for Batman, this Arkham Asylum thing, which was a super kind of psychological, you know, kind of European cinema take on Batman. I stole it out of a library in Paisley. Ah, well, yeah. So, <laughs> so that was kind of one of my first things, you know, and I came up with another one in the train down and sold that as well. So they, they picked me up, but to, to suddenly get to do it was like, well, this is it, this is Batman, this is the biggest thing in the world, really, you know, and the film was out that year, so our book sold really well, and it was, it's, it's like you think, it's like playing the World Cup, you know, but the, when you feel as if you spent your whole life preparing for the World Cup, then it, it's kind of like, well, of course, you know, I was hoping, this is exactly what I hoped for. But the, the impact of that was almost immediate as well, though, because obviously that was an era where particularly the Batman mythos, was being recontextualized. It was being taken more seriously. This was permeating through the graphic novels, which were permeating through the films. But in particular, Arkham Asylum, I mean, obviously, the, the Arkham lore is part of, of, of the Batman mythos. But there's a very direct correlation between that particular, uh, but that particular thing and then you look on to the, the, the Arkham video games, for yeah, example, yeah. or just Arkham now being a character mm -hmm. in Gotham in a way that perhaps it, it wasn't before. I mean, it must be immensely satisfying when you see something translating that clearly. No, absolutely. It's great when you realise people are actually taking this stuff seriously. But for me, again, I mean, going back to what we really started with was the working class, you know, my dad was an activist. So for me, the comics became about, can I put forward a point of view that I don't normally see in these books? And it's, you know, the west of Scotland, very much working class, but a, a point of view that comes from an activist background. And so I just saw the comics as an extension of that. I was never going to be a picketer like my dad or anything, you know, and I saw where that, that approach also failed. He crashed against a lot of rocks of bureaucracy and, and you, you know what it's like, you know, the, the stagnant control that we all the live under. <laughs> so yeah, so, but I thought, well, there's another way of doing this that maybe I can code this material into comic books and put it in symbolic terms so that people are reading a big, exciting, epic story, but everything's meaningful, everything stands for something else and you can translate, you can read it in a lot of different ways. So that's what I thought was the the most interesting thing about getting to do those characters is to actually say something, you know, and talk about And things. it is kind of, I guess, it's a sort of, there is a covert way of doing it <clears throat> as well, in terms of like a secret identity almost, mm -hmm. where there is the, the literal reading of the thing, and then there's, you know, your, your, your subtext or symbolically, and as someone returns to a piece of work yeah. as they mature, there are new, there's, there's new meaning to find. Uh, one of the recent, this is a medium that you moved into recently, I say recently, I mean it's a, it's a couple of years back now, um, after obviously developing your skills as a storyteller in various other forms, um, you then took, took on the challenge of uh, creating a comic series and, uh, 
and, 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 and it receives a lot of support. It, it's done really, really well. And I wonder if you could just talk us through what the kind of, what, from the point of conception to execution, um, and, and, and what aspects of that did you enjoy? What aspects of it were challenging? I think with the comic books, I'd grown up watching a lot of animation, Batman in Congo and Spider-Man. And I used to get in a lot of trouble for watching too much TV. My mom is like, hey, you got to do homework. Ah, you know, I, was, I need to come up with a better idea. Every time they went to work and came back, you know, from the 80s, you, you have these big TVs. So she can touch the TV and tell I've been watching it for all these hours. It was really warm, right? So we had one that was broken at the back of a house and uh, the inside part we're not in. So I'd put my brothers and sisters to lie there and I'd put my head through the back and start acting out things <laughs> I'd seen in Batman and, you know, Spider-Man shooting some webs and had the best time. So when I moved to Scotland, I've, already, I've always felt like I needed to do a comic book. I didn't know what angle, you know, to bring it in and how uh, it would be different from what's already out there because, I mean, there's already other great people who have done comic books, but I really want it to be special and personal to me. So uh, as I was doing all the music video and stuff like that, I used to get in a lot of trouble with the police. Like, I could get stopped randomly. At, at one point, I got a courtesy car from Arnold Clark, and I got stopped by the same police three times in one week. And they were like, I, I'm like, this is a rented car. My car is being fixed. I don't know why you keep stopping me, you know? And how can you afford a <laughs> car from Arnold Clark? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I kind of like, and then people started calling me the N-word a couple of times on the bars, throwing stones at my house. And I'm like, is this the promised land I was excited to come to, right? And then I saw how my friends reacted in scenarios like that, and they end up getting locked up and stuff like that. I'm like, what if I could translate all these frustrations, all these things I have into something awesome and you know, and then I put the character to deal with these things I cannot control in the world. And that's how Beats of War came to be. And then that idea came to me like three o'clock in the morning after I was drinking like cold milk out of the fridge. I couldn't find water for some reason. And I was like, Beats of War. And I could link my Congolese character with the Scottish character in an epic science fiction story, but make it really fictional. But it's that person. So that's how it came to me. And I remember the next day I started writing the script and three days later I had the first draft uh, ready to go. So that was really just boom, boom. a light comes on. Mm -hmm. And that's an amazing, uh, that's amazing when it happens. Cause I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, we don't know where it comes from, but we're there to sort of receive it when it comes and be lucky enough maybe to translate it from wherever it comes from and then get it done on, on, on the page. But that process in and of itself, um, it's very difficult to get an idea that has come to you as a form of inspiration to then actually finish it. You know, and so many creative people get stuck in this because they think that once you're inspired, <laughs> it's just plain sailing from there when actually most of the creative process for me and music, and I've, I've deployed the same sort of storytelling elements in, in, in all the areas that you work in, and music as well, which is similar to comics in terms of the, 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 the imagination is the only limit, you know? But 
the fucking half the process, man, is just going through that oscillation between this is a fucking brilliant idea, man. I know what I'm doing to, oh my God, how did I think I can do this? To, oh my God, what the fuck is going on to back to the, you know, the, the, the grandiosity. And, and, and it's hard explaining that sometimes to people because they get the inspiration, they fit, hit the first hurdle and they can't get through in that first cloud of, of, of self-doubt. Uh, I wonder what your experience has been, Grant, in terms of, I mean, it seems like, as you say, Coming from the background you were, you did your eight years on the brew, so you were really just chomping at the bit mm -hmm. to get going. But you've had a long career already, and there must be peaks and troughs in that for you in terms of just internally feeling mm -hmm. more inspired at sometimes than others. I think, honestly, the way I look at it is you draw an inspiration every day. So if it's a down day, then that will go in the, the comet, you know, because I'm not trying to sing one song. It's, you know, this isn't just, it's, it's all going to be the same. So like I say, some days you feel miserable, other days you're joyous and you can put forward a joyous, optimistic thing. And I think if you make it about your own life, there's always material, no matter how old you get, no matter how fed up or bored or whatever, or happy, you can always put it into a story. You can always translate it into a symbol. So for me, that was the way of doing it. And I came to that because of deadlines, you know. I'd never have finished anything unless there was deadlines. But once I get into the business, you're on monthly deadlines, so you finish stuff. You've got to finish stuff. You want to keep doing your job. And it really came from that. You just get the discipline of being able to finish and also to, to stick on something, you know. There is obvious overlap here in the audience, so we kind of detected it too. And don't worry, I will open it up for questions about 20 past, right? Normally I do it quarter past, but I'm having so much fun. <laughs> asking them questions myself, so I'm being a bit selfish. I apologise. And also, I know there is someone in here recording, I can feel it. <laughs> there is someone in here with a recorder. It better be for academic purposes. <laughs> I'll fucking come and find you. I'll learn some fucking well. magic <laughs> off Grant <laughs> and I'll fucking curse you. Um, there's an overlap uh, uh, in terms of comic film. There's the comic books have been adapted. It's now one of the biggest genre, uh, industries in, in Hollywood, if not the biggest. And it kind of goes in cycles, doesn't it? You get a kind of new golden age of stuff that's not just visually great, linking clearly to source material, but seems to have clever, witty writing. And it's not just about the costumes and the action. And then there's a slump where everybody tries to replicate that. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's the same in all kind of art forms where there's money involved and incentives involved and all that. Um, I, I, I recently, my, my two recent films that I've gone to see, I had two different experiences, two different films I've watched, sorry. Right, my favorite comic book film of all time is Logan, right? right. Logan, and I don't know if that's cause I'm kicking 40's door down and I'm now relating to the story of the older guy who's still got it if there's the right drug involved. Um, oh, but but I, uh, I, I went to see The Flash, which I know you were involved in the first iterations of the script for that, uh, Grant, mm -hmm. and I went to see Across the Spider-Verse. Now, both of these films were trying to essentially do the same thing. They were trying to pay homage to decades and decades of history and lore. Uh, they were trying to bring us on a kind of nostalgia trip uh, and they were trying to be a balance between dramas and comedies and, and, uh, and also emotional with strong themes of family. Now one of those films done a really, really, really great job of it and one of those films, it just never stuck the landing for me and it was partly because of how hyped up it had got. 
The hype machine for The Flash was crazy. There'll be people in here who've never heard of The Flash, never went to see it. They will have seen an advert somewhere. I hadn't seen a superhero movie marketed like that for a very, very long time. And then when I went to see it, it was partly because of the hype. <clears throat> that is why then I was sitting with this kind of feeling of, oh, I don't know what it is that's, that's happened here. Did you guys go and see it? I saw it, yeah. You I, saw it? I saw it. You saw it? What was your thoughts on it? Because I, I, I was, I was, so, I wanted to support. I went to see it twice. <laughs> uh, the fact that there was no Superman, you know, Henry Cavill, that didn't do for me. But so I you had the Snyder verse beef with it. Yeah, right. Like see, everyone's got a different angle on it. And Mike <laughs> Keaton as Batman was one of my favorites. Batman having him. No spoilers, I hope everybody's seen it. Having him die, I was like, um... And then the other character, the other Flash character that was more like childish and everything, didn't work for me. I, I kind of wanted it more serious. Yeah. I think when I'm going to watch a DC film, I'm just, I think my expectations are too high. I just want a, a pretty serious, yeah. badass, kick-ass, you know, uh, action movie, you know, and um, it didn't do... I think it's the bad publicity around him as well, but... I just felt I wanted more from the movie. I didn't, it's sometimes hard to explain when they kill, kill off some characters you really love and then the other character is not taken as serious as you would want him to be. It's also I'm, partly because they're, they're so interconnected because I know <clears throat> your version that you worked on, yeah. um, they, 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 they never went with that. They went with something else. They wanted and to go down the mountain. that was their big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Tragically, that was they the They wanted to mistake. go down the kind of multiverse route yeah. because obviously that's what's really hitting right yeah. now or that's what was hitting at the time. Um, and, and so you must have gone to see it just out of curiosity. <clears throat> I know that sometimes elements are borrowed from previous scripts because they pay you, they own the script, mm -hmm. they can use the ideas. Was there anything in there that, that was ported over no, from your version? Really, there wasn't like microscopic moments, but there wasn't really, you know, and that. I mean, I, I thought there was one good film in there and two not very good films fighting it. <laughs> And that was its problem, just too many writers, and that's, that's what happens, you know, they should have just stuck with one vision, and God knows who that could have been, but they should have stuck with the one vision. <clears throat> I'm, I'm such a Keaton fan mm -hmm. that I not only went to see it twice, just for the, the movie After an Hour, where he appears, but then I bought it on home premiere for like 20 quid as well, just to watch it again, just that whole sequence, because I thought, you know, I, my, my first, my, my, my journey into this, Comic World was really a department store with my granny, 1989. We went there, it's closed down now, probably to get something that I wasn't interested in, because she was my granny and she was going to buy granny stuff, right? And I must have wandered over to some other part of the shop and I found this little black toy car on the ground. It was a weird shape. I had the kind of, and it was the, it was the 89 Batmobile, oh, yeah. which obviously is still iconic. But it was just a little toy, at first I didn't know what it was, and then that started the whole journey, you know what I mean, I, 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 into it. But the other film that I've seen and that I've also watched multiple times, it'll be good to get your takes uh, on it, is uh, Across the Spider-Verse, the sequel to the, the, the first film. And these films are not only brilliant looking, super creative, bursting with colour, bursting with energy, bursting with humour, but they're, 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 for, for people who are into it as deep as you guys are, the lore, and the references is all there as well. It's just interesting. What is the difference between getting something right and then missing the mark? 
what do I say? I'm in a singular vision and not a bunch of people competing. And, you know, they end up just fighting each other. Too many cooks. I, I, think, I don't know how many people worked on Spider-Verse. But as you say, I saw, I saw the first one. It's a beautiful-looking thing. But it's got heart. It's got meaning, you know. It's so they got it right. But, I mean, a lot of the other Marvel movies, I think, are losing their way a wee bit. So. I think it's... Uh, I've not watched the second one. I like the first one because, obviously, you know, like... Grant said, with when you have so many writers, you've got people with different ideas. But I really like the first one because, most importantly, it looked like a comic book uh, page, you know. So that's, there was that whole theme to it that was pretty cool. And it had heart, it had a story about family, which uh, I'm always looking for in stories, which was great for me. So I've not seen the second one, so I'm here to check that out as well. Yeah, well my, my son, Daniel, who I'm going to shout out now for when he's older and listens back to this, um, he wants to dress up as Miles Morales for Halloween, but we might have to have a conversation first. <laughs> just about the mechanics of that. Um, so that's interesting, just the way that culture is changing and that we are seeing diversity, but it's not always that cynical kind of diversity where the optics just change. We're actually hearing stories and we're seeing certain culture reflected in quite an authentic way that then does permeate real life where I have to have that conversation with my son about he can get the Miles Morales costume <laughs> and that's, that's where it stops, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, and then it's amazing when, when you, you notice that cultural reverberation of something when it really is resonating. Right, I think I've kind of uh, held court here with these folk enough, so I'm going to open up because I know there's going to be folk here that are desperate to ask a question and I see it's you. Can we get the lights up, please, so that I can see who I'm talking to? Hi, I've, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. I've got a, uh, a question for Grant. Yeah, okay. Like, obviously, when you wrote The Invisibles, like, it was visionary and it was counterculture and it was just... It fucking blew my mind. It was th beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. What the other thing that you did was you clearly talked about the impact that psychedelics had had in your creative process at a time where we were at the height of the war on drugs. So it was not trendy to talk about that. And I just wondered how you felt about the way that movement's like now going. It's like increasingly being handed over to psychiatrists, the military, whereas, so you need to go <clears> to a <throat> clinic now to take those substances mm -hmm. rather than Kathmandu. <laughs> that's true, you know. That's, that's why I did it in the 90s. I knew it was coming. No, I, I think it's true, but everything has been co-opted. Everything is commodified. Everything is becoming, you know, what's its value? How can we sell this to someone rather than just how can that, you know, it's, it's AI. Everything's becoming AI, I think, you know, and that's the problem. But capitalism devours everything. And look at the Invisibles now, it's QAnon. <laughs> That's what's happened. Those conspiracy theories that I was talking about then have become actual reality. They've become the... And the royal family. Yeah, <laughs> and all, all of it, you know. And now if you can go online and find as many people as you want to believe any one of those conspiracies utterly. So I think that's the... What I was talking about back then was... was I, I saw it as mythology, and now it's become reality. You know, I thought it was it was going to become our new myth to replace religion, in some awful way. But it's much worse than I'd imagined in the sense that conspiracy now is the the actual substance and texture of the world. Thanks very much for your your, your thoughtful question. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Anyone else? I'm sure there is. Oh, right, right there. 
Are you together? No, <laughs> just off. Because that would be an unfair advantage to your household like or relationship. Down the front, right, okay. to be keen. So, I mean, uh, obviously, a lot of uh, movies being made, and James Gunn is basically going to draw from your oeuvre to make the new the very wise move. He's going to draw from your version of Batman and Superman. I don't necessarily think they need uh, they need to. It doesn't valid, you know. They don't need validation. The, any film from All Star Superman is not going to be as good as All Star Superman, I think. But um, I think one of your achievements that gets overlooked, apart from you know, uh, revamping Batman, re revamping Superman, providing the raw material for the the people to make the Matrix, <laughs> and you're looking very King Mob tonight. <laughs> no, he always um, looked like me. <laughs> but but uh, you you elevated like a sort of bottom tier set of characters to like um, top tier almost and, and made them immortal and everyone sort of forgets this and you've now you've got an Oscar winner actor playing Cliff mm -hmm. so you t took the Doom Patrol and sort of raised them up made them immortal and took them to the they'll they'll be carrying on long after we are gone thanks to you and I think that's for, forgotten maybe so do you want to speak about what are you proud of the, what you did with the Doom Patrol and how they're living on and well, carrying I mean, on. Yeah, I mean, as I say, of course, I'm, I'm proud, you know, and I loved doing it at the time. And I knew eventually, 30 years or 40 years later, they would take all that stuff and, and give us hardly anything. But, you know, that's, that's the way it worked. I'm, of course, I'm happy to see that the work is reverberated through the culture, you know, even if you're not necessarily always recognised for it. It doesn't matter. That's not what it's done for, you know. It's to, it's to make an effect, to make a ripple. Thanks very much again. Uh, do we have anyone? I just kind of feel like I want to just <laughs> look over here just to see <laughs> if there's anyone. No. Oh, Who there we go, someone up the back there. I was just wondering, uh, for a yeah, question for Grant, which artists do you feel like encapsulated your ideas the, the best? I know that's obviously like Hunters that did it well, but who, yeah, I mean, it's the, the top three? Frank Quitely is obviously the, the best, you know, he's just most synced with, with how I think. But there's a ton of like loads of people I've worked with, uh, you know, Doug Monkey and, and you know, I always forget, I mean, the minute I see somebody's name, it's going, oh, who did I work with? You know, but basically, basically everybody, Chris Weston, you know, Chris Burnham on Batman. It's, so there's been a ton of people that really, really get what I do and those are the best stories generally because they express them in the, the, the most accurate way. And I'm grateful uh, to, to obviously folk that have, have been long-standing uh, fans of Grant's work for coming with the questions about the deep impact and the <laughs> deep lore. Because I'm also recording the audio for this and my audience is a bit different. So I'm sort of keeping the questions in a realm that makes it relatable to the average person. But the sheer gravitational pull <laughs> of geeks is just everywhere. And they will always take it to the most obscure corner that they can. And on that note, where are we going now? <laughs> I've actually got a question for both, so wow, if that's great. okay. So, Fantastic. Um, Etienne, um, could I please ask you if you could adapt any well-known comic book universal character for film, what would you pick? Like, complete freedom to do anything. And then a question for Grant, would you, I know you've done a little bit of acting in music videos, mm -hmm. would you ever be interested in acting in movies more? You started, yeah. 
I think for me would be Batman because uh, a lot of directors have done their own takes on Batman and the recent one that I really enjoyed was Matt Reeves' one with Robert Patterson, which was really good and uh, he kind of went back to him being a detective, which was quite interesting. So uh, Batman would be my choice because he's grounded, you know, uh, a lot of people can relate to that character and he means so much to a lot of uh, comic book fans around the world. So yeah, that would be my pick. Yeah, and I would, I would always do it. If anyone asks me, I'll, I'll tend to do these things, but I'm not an actor, honestly. I'm an enthusiastic amateur, and you know, I'm happy to always give it a go, and I've, I've done quite a few, and apparently I'm actually eligible for the membership of the Actors Guild in America, who are currently in strike, I think. So, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I'd always do it, but seriously, I'm not an actor. But you could be in Etienne's Batman, then. Yeah, I'm ha I'll happily show up in Batman, definitely, you know. Be, be the Joker. Uh, yeah. oh, I could do him. I think I could do him. Yeah. Never say never. <laughs> um, anyone else got a question? Thanks for your question, by the way. Someone up the back there. We're, doing for oh, we're okay for another five minutes. Hi, so kind of like a question uh, for both of you as well. Obviously, both of you have done like quite a wide variety of things within your um, professions, but like, is there any sort of like idea or like theme that you've like always wanted to do, but like never found a way to like fit it into your work, or have you always found that you can kind of sort of fit your work around something that you're really wanting to do? Well, for me, it tends to be as I said, I kind of base it on what's happening in life, so things emerge naturally that you kind of want to talk about, you know, so it would always emerge, you know, from the, the environment for me. So I've, I've never had a problem with that, you know, just it's, it's all, there's always been a way to express what was going on in the day for me. I think for me, uh, if I don't know if you guys have read Beats of War comic book, it's more like Marvel friendly type of comic book. But the one thing that I've always but I'm already actually working on it. Uh, it's a dark theme. Yeah, I wanted to sort of deal with my darker self through a comic book superhero character. And I think I'm doing that with a new uh, uh, graphic novel called The Heiner Man. Now <laughs> I reveal the title. And uh, it's pretty dark. It goes in dark places. It's one of the sides, parts of myself that I never knew the right way to tap into. And I feel like with bits of war coming out, I've finally come out of my shelf uh, and I can now explain myself with no limits and it'll probably be like a 15 rate. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. the one. And I guess just to add to that, I mean, I find that the darker stuff for me, the darker it gets, the funnier it starts to become so I can never quite get to it. It becomes ludicrous, the darker things, you know, because it's such a focused way of thinking that it always tends to end up funny. See, so, the, the thing I've always envied about uh, whether it's filmmakers or whether it's comic book writers or novelists or whatever, uh, coming from a hip hop background and being a rapper, I'm always identified with the material. I don't get that distance. I don't get to say, uh, this is not my opinion. This is not my dark fantasy. <laughs> you all get that, right? So you can deal with any subject. You can have rapists, pedophiles. You can have child uh, violence. You can have anything that you want, anything that you pick. And no one will ever go, that's what you actually think, that's what you actually are. But if a rapper does it, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because rappers are associated with poverty and working classness and an absence of education, anything the rapper says is attributed to them and they're held responsible for it. So there's no, 
no art is assumed from the rapper's perspective. So I could be dealing with characters, I could be dealing with themes, I could be telling an interlinking story over multiple tracks, world building, all of these things. But it will ultimately be attributed to me. So if I have gender-based violence in a song, that means I'm dangerous. If I have, you know, whatever it might be in a song, then that says something about me. And so it actually, for, for, for me, there's been a kind of real, real need to try and find other vehicles mm. to express these ideas because rap, well, has a lot of utility as a form. Culturally, we're just not there to accept that the, the rapper is just another writer who's yeah. using voice I, and perspective. You know, comedians get the same problem where people don't understand it's a performance, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's why I identify quite strongly with the, the, the comedians in terms of just that singular perspective. Yeah. And, and it's because you're having a direct contact with the audience is the thing. They, they presume that you are the person in their living room talking to them, you know? Right, time for one more, guys. Anyone? Uh, did you have your hand up? I've just reminded you there that you had your hand up. All the people that did have their hand up, they'll be raging. <laughs> so I, I just thought I liked the theme uh, of the dark fantasy down that you portrayed off stage, you know, the, the times we're living in. And I've got a teenage son from a working class background who's just made it into university, he's going to come up to Edinburgh. <clears throat> but majority of his classmates and stuff haven't got there. And there's all these statistics out just now where uh, the figures are really low for anybody from working class background getting to university or I'm not saying university be on all but those that can't get their aspirations and I was interested to in how Darren met you and you by the age of 20 came to Scotland and you'd set up an office so what, what was that path like what was the difficulties because I'm I'm a youth worker and etc I'm always looking at how we can big up our young folk and let them believe there is aspirations and Grant says, you know, he got a bit of paper put in front of him and was encouraged at five years old. So that's quite a good question, isn't it? Yeah. It's good, man. It's good, Danny. <laughs> and I just want to end things on as well. Thank you, Danny. I think uh, I've, I tried when I was starting up, I remember I tried to get funding to get a, a camera. I think there's an organization called Live Unlimited that gave me funding to get a camera for the first time. And then after that, I couldn't get any funding anywhere. So what I did is got a car and started doing delivery dry, deliveries. I was doing just eat delivery. So during the day I was working, at night I'm in the studio creating. So I had to fund the whole thing to take off for the last seven years it took. And when, before COVID, I think it was uh, about 2019, I was like, I need to create something that can still support me even if I'm not working and it can support the film and everything I wanted. So I always wanted to create something that, I, that, I, that was too tough, but obviously didn't feel like I was working, but I'm always working anyway, I would say. So that's when Beats of War came to me. I was like, if I can share my story through one thing that I want to share with the world, which is a comic book, and hopefully that could help me do other things like film and to be able to balance that. So the first seven years was, were really tough because no one gave me money to do anything. I was just trying to doing deliveries and then putting that money into like what I was doing. Creative Scotland didn't give me money. I tried apps. Applications are quite complicated. So when Beats of War came out, I sent out about a thousand copies free of charge. And I was like, if you do enjoy this comic, take a photo, tag me, Twitter. When I sent those out a week later, it started blowing up. And it sold over 30,000 copies independently. And that's I mean, how that's, things have that is fucking dynamite man that when i found out that you had sold that many i was just like 
what the fuck is he on, man? Yeah. Like, that, isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> he's initiated something himself, and then he sold 30,000 copies. There are people on mainstream publishers that can't sell that many books with a whole machine behind mm -hmm. them. That is some fucking achievement, man. Yeah, yeah it's, really it's been a pretty... Scary Johnny, but it's been yeah, yeah. Fulfilling. You're beating out some Marvel and DC comics. You know, you <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave it there then. Uh, listen, we will run a couple of minutes over. My apologies to the the, the staff at the uh, venue, but I think that they are as interested in this event actually as uh, as we all are. Um, I'm really grateful to you guys for agreeing to do this, man. I was just sitting there as you were both talking, and I was just feeling a lot of gratitude having took a bit of a gamble, switching the format up this year and kind of going out on a limb and asking people to come. And, 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 and most of the people that I asked came. So I, I want to thank you for helping me achieve something that I've been setting out to do, which is just to move the spotlight away from me a wee bit and, and, and just get involved in more conversations with other people and hearing what they're up to and, and, and getting my audience uh, involved in this conversation as well. Thank you so much, guys, for coming along. I know some of you have just walked up, taken a wee punt. Some of you have been, uh, bought your tickets uh, ages ago. Uh, whatever your reason for coming here, if you like this show, you like this format, uh, I'll be here until Saturday, and you can buy tickets for another show on your way out the door. We've got Irvin Welsh and Kat Cochran in tomorrow, same time. And if you can't do that, uh, and I know not all of you can, I'll thank you for buying tickets on the way in. I hope that you'll go away feeling inspired, moved, or whatever else you might feel. I don't know, man. It's a couple of pretty hot folk up here, you know what I mean? You could be stirred in any sort of way, you never know. <laughs> I hope that you take that with you and enjoy the rest of your week and your life if I don't see you again.